take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Samuel. This past week, we marked the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And for well over a year leading up to that actual invasion, Russia kept amassing forces, you know, on the border there at Ukraine. And Vladimir Putin kept saying, no, we're not, you know, that invasion was not the goal, that that was not was, that is not what was going to happen. So were we surprised when it did happen? Were we surprised that that particular national leader said one thing but did something else? We shouldn't have been, right? I mean, I, I believe he's a deranged despot. And so we should, we should be cynical of what we hear from someone like him. But what about here in the good old USA? What about here in our country? Given the track record of a lot of politicians, is it natural that we might be cynical? At least skeptical? Now, there's a difference. Look that up. I'm not going to take the time to go into the difference between being skeptical and cynical. But skepticism or cynicism might be warranted when we consider how things go sometimes in our political structure. I read a Pew Research uh, statistic this week that shouldn't really surprise us that our trusting government is at an all-time low. Although it's interesting, and this shouldn't surprise you either, if, if there's a Democrat in the White House or if there's a Democrat majority, then Democrats feel more positive about the direction government is and that it can be trusted. And yes, it's just the opposite for Republicans if there's a Republican in office or there are Republicans in the majority in our House. We, we trust them more until that is they do something that we don't like and then it's throw the bums out. That's, that's kind of, and you know what, that's kind of a beauty of our democracy. One writer said this, said, well, he said, we are a fickle bunch and we are that. Um, but that's the beauty of a democracy, he said. We can change leaders without a civil war. So, Winston Churchill put it this way. Democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those others that we've tried. I read that this week and I thought, yeah, we've developed a pretty low expectation for our leaders. And not just our political leaders. Sometimes even within our faith communities. And given the repeated revelations consistently of pastors and leaders who, you know, morally fail, financially fail, get wrapped up in politics or for whatever reason seem to be willing to set aside their credibility and their testimony. And, and it's not good for me to say it, but I'm just not surprised by much anymore. It's like, eh, I've seen that too many times, too many other places to be shocked by it. It's interesting that we think, well, maybe if we set the bar really low, we won't be as easily disappointed. We're going to put these guys up on a platform. Let's just make it a low platform so when they fall off, they don't get hurt too bad and neither do we. 
But besides that, not only the, the failures, it was interesting, you know, the whole issue of Me Too and how that played out within the Southern Baptist Convention over the last few years and just thankfully opening our eyes to the reality of sexual abuse going on within the church. Back in 2018, a young lady named Jules Woodson made allegations against her former youth pastor, a guy named Andy Savage at a Southern Baptist church in Texas. She said that he had uh, put her in the back of his pickup truck and abused her one night at church. Well, what was surprising about that was that, as it was reported in several Baptist papers and in the Houston Chronicle, that he stood up in Sunday on a following Sunday in one of his church and confessed to a, quote, sexual incident, unquote, and got a standing ovation from the congregation. Standing ovation. So not only have we come to be cynical and expect failure, we almost embrace it. It's not the only occasion where someone has stood up and confessed something before his church and gets a standing ovation. So what's my point in all that? It seems that we've come to expect corruption, contempt, abuse, ineptitude. It's, it's like we've come to expect that both outside in the world and even within the church. And Second Samuel, the passage we look at today, is going to... It's going to show us why sometimes that skepticism is warranted. But it's also going to show us what God's answer to that is. It's, a, it's an amazing picture, all right? Um, and it's a contrast. We're going to see this contrast between two faithless men, or I believe a faithless family, and a faithful family. And that contrast, as stark as it is, is going to point us ultimately to Jesus. Okay, so that's where we're headed. That's always where we're headed. But that's where we're headed in this passage too. So look look in Second Samuel, excuse me, first Samuel chapter two. I said first week we were just gonna call it Samuel. So so we will do that. It'll be easier to do that after we get past this section where Samuel is the primary character, but that said, turn to first Samuel chapter two. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. And I'm going to read part, skip part, read part, and we'll go back. We'll cover it all, but we're going to do it a little portion at a time. It says in verse 12, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. By the way, their names, as we saw back in chapter 1, are Hophni and Phinehas. Okay? So they are, their names are given to us. There in chapter 1, as it tells us that Elkanah and his family are going to worship there at Shiloh, and that's where Hophni and Phinehas serve as priests, okay? So anyway, that's their names. So the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the, men, while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, only the raw. 
And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now, skip down to verse 22. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent meeting, to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is not good. It is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So, let's look at... Eli and his family. Five words have just kind of been rolling in my mind as I've looked at this passage, and we'll look at each of those five words as characters, as characteristics of, of Eli and his family. Those words are corrupt, or you could say worthless, corrupt, contempt, abuse, inept, and judged. Corrupt, contempt, abuse, inept, and judged. Corrupt is seen here at the very beginning of the passage. And this corruption is just not merely in what they do. The text doesn't begin in what they do. The text begins with who they are in their character. They are corrupt in their character. And that corruption comes from a corrupt root. You see? Because it says they did not know the Lord. So that's the issue. That's the, that's the root problem. They did not know the Lord. Now, the fruit of that is the corruption that we see in all these other characteristics. So this idea of being worthless, you know, Grandpa would have said, he ain't worth a plug nickel. Or there's other phrases that Grandpa sometimes used to describe how worthless someone was. But this worthlessness here is a word that we've seen before because it's translated as a son of Belial. And it actually means to be destructive or wicked or rebellious. Earlier in Samuel, when Hannah was praying and Eli thought she was drunk, she said, no, my Lord, I'm not worthless. I'm not a worthless daughter of Belial. I'm not that at all. The word is used to describe earlier in the book of Judges the group of men who raped and murdered the Levite's concubine. Remember the story? She was cut up then into 12 pieces and sent around. But these guys who gang-raped this woman were described as sons of Belial, worthless. That's what these priests were. That's what these men wearing the holy garments of God were. And the root of their worthlessness is in that they did not know the Lord. This will be an application at the end of the sermon. But listen closely. There is a very real danger in being close to the things of God and never by faith appropriating them. There is very great danger, grave danger in spiritual proximity without faith appropriation. 
We get calloused in our soul. We get calloused in our heart. You hear that same old Jesus stuff over and over and over, and pretty soon it just rolls off like water off a duck. And that's a bad place to be. That's where these two men were. It leads to a shallowness in our hearts. It leads to spiritual callousness at best. It leads to spiritual destruction at worst. So they were corrupt. Verse 12 is meant to shock us. Does it? Does it shock us that men who were called to be priests are described in this way? Just a question. Their corruption is greed. They're greedy. They're driven by personal gain. The text tells us here that they've taken the the whole sacrificial process that God had given them and they perverted it for their personal gain. Now, God had given very clear instructions and very gracious allowances for the priest in the book of Leviticus. And it, and it says there, and I'll just read you a small portion. There's several places we could go. Leviticus chapter 7 says this. I'm in chapter 7, verse 28. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever offers the sacrifice of his peace offering to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offering. His own hand shall bring the Lord's food offering. He shall bring the fat with the breast, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but this breast shall be for Aaron and his sons. And the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifice of your peace offerings. So I could go on, but the point was a part of those sacrificial offerings that were brought were to be burned as sacrifice to the Lord, and part of them were to be given to the priest for their allowance, for their food, for them to eat. And God was gracious in providing that for them. That wasn't enough for Hophni and Phinehas. And they got a little tired of the boiled meat. They wanted to barbecue. So not only did they take what was out of the pot in, a, in the wrong way to do that, they were lazy besides greedy because they just sent some guy to do their hard work for them. But even the priest, the people who came to worship knew this isn't how it ought to be. At least let us burn the fat like we're told to do. And this, you know, this enforcer who came on behalf of Hophni and Phinehas would say, no, give us the raw meat. They want to roast it, and if you won't give it to us, I'll take it by force. So there's greed, there's corruption, there's laziness. And in this picture is a picture of contempt. Of contempt. It says that as this process is being played out, in verse 17 it says, The sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for men treated the offerings of the Lord with contempt. The idea there is they kicked at it. One contemporary version says they took the things of God and they just kicked them back in God's face. So they treated the weighty, holy things of God as light and insignificant. I'll talk about that more in just a minute when we apply it here. They were contemptuous. They were also abusive. Down in verse 23... It tells us that Eli is old. Clearly he's not directly involved in the things that are going on there at the tabernacle in Shiloh. But he's hearing about it and he's hearing about it often and repeatedly from all of Israel saying how the men are laying with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. 
So there's this abusive situation, first off, in physical abuse. They're just muscling their way around in these worship services. Taking by force what was not theirs to take. So they're driven by their guts and their appetite, and they're driven by their sexual appetite as well. And so they've taken this holy place of God and turned it into a place of sexual abuse. And no, that word is not used here, but that's my perspective on it from what I've seen happening over the last several years in the lives of many churches and many denominations where men and women, but especially men, who have positions of spiritual authority are abusing that authority and exercising that in ways that are destructive on the lives of young women. And they'll end up in the same place, that being the bed or the back of a truck. But it's abuse. And these men were abusive. They were sexually abusive. And God saw it. And God took note of it. So I go back to thinking about what Brad's preaching right now down there in Apex, that who we are is the fountain from which what we do flows. It's not the other way around. These men were worthless, sons of Belial, destructive. They did not know the Lord, and we see the fruit of that in their lives. What we see next is this picture of a father who's stepping in in some way, but clearly in an ineffective way, and trying to bring correction to these. And, and, and by now, these are adult men, but they're still his sons. Eli, at this point in time, is probably close to 90 years old. We'll see that later on in the text. But maybe he's not directly involved, but he knows what's going on because he keeps hearing it, right? All of Israel is telling this to Eli. So how does he respond? Well, he questions them. Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people, it says in verse 23. So he questions them. And he in some way, I think very weakly, rebukes them. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear of the people of the Lord spreading abroad. And he does make a statement that is factual in one sense and significant. How is, how is this going to be corrected in your lives? Now, we'll look to the cross and see how it's corrected. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Now, what do we learn from David later on in Psalm 51 is that all sin is against the Lord, right? We get that? We get that. So God's going to have to be the one to figure out how to intercede and give us any kind of forgiveness and redemption in that. Praise God he does. But Eli's question to his sons, he confronts them with their sin. And I believe he confronts them with the seriousness of the sin. But he kind of stops there. There's no direct rebuke. There's no demand for repentance. In fact, if they really wanted to follow the Old Testament law, there'd be a capital crime and a capital punishment. But he just kind of lets it go. Which is just a picture of permissiveness. It's a picture of parental ineptitude, frankly. And then finally, earlier in Hannah's prayer, you remember this? She said, talk no more very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. 
She sang that, she prophesied that, and here it's coming true in the lives of these men. They would not listen, it says, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. I'm looking at verse 25. That's a hard, hard statement to see. It can be a hard statement to understand, and it's critically important that we don't get it wrong. We must not make the mistake of blaming this sin on God. We can't do that. Scripture won't allow us to do that. And I'll give you by example, and I'll give you as evidence of that, something that goes on in the book of Exodus. And we see this four times. Four times in the book of Exodus, God says about Pharaoh, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. God tells Moses that four times. But then we also see this in exactly the same number of times. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And would not listen to the Lord. So was God at work there? Yes. Was Pharaoh disobedient? Yes. Was he being held accountable for that? Yes. Was God to blame for the sin? No. And so as we see this played out here in the scriptures and we see this example, one truth does not exclude the other. Not in a biblical sense of understanding. It's important we get that. But it was God's will that these men be judged. God had a word for unfaithful priests in the book of Ezekiel. I've read this passage several times this week and asked the Lord to, to apply it in my own heart, just, just to help me be reminded of this. It'd be a good word for all of us to be reminded of. In Ezekiel chapter 34, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Should shepherds feed, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered over all the mountains, and on every hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Now, God will go on to declare that he's going to intercede himself on behalf of his sheep. But here's this picture that we have of these men so close to the holy things of God, and yet they did not know the Lord. And there's a warning in that even for us. We'll see that in just a minute. Now, look at the contrast interspersed in this passage in just little paragraphs and sentences is this picture of Eli's worthless sons. And this little pinpoint of light, this little picture of faithfulness, kind of stuck in between, all right? So it says in verse 17, the sin of the young men was great in the sight, very great, rather, in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Then in verse 18, look, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Alkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. 
And indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. It says later on, after the after they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Look at the next sentence there in verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in both stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So interspersed in this picture of this corruption and contempt and ineptitude and abuse is this little picture, these little reminders And the words that came to mind as I thought about this were consistent and quietly faithful and growing. Consistent, quiet and faithful and growing. Back in chapter 1 and verse 3, the man used to go up year by year to the city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. He's talking about Elkanah, Samuel's father says in verse 21 that the man Elkanah and his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. And then as I read here in verse 18, there were, as, as he was ministering before the Lord, his mother would come and make him a little robe every year when they came. There's just consistency here. They're just going to church when they're supposed to. Starts there. It starts with that simple... Regular, faithful picture of obedience. They're consistent. They're quietly faithful. There's not a word spoken by Samuel through this. He's just ministering there before the Lord. There's not anything really said that Elkanah and Hannah say. They're just simply coming before the Lord and being quietly faithful. So while Hophni and Phinehas are profiting and perverting the work of God there at Shiloh, quietly and faithfully, there's this young boy ministering before the Lord. And that's the term that's used. And we don't know, I don't know exactly what he's doing. He's doing priestly stuff. His young boy's learning that. He's at first under the tutelage of Eli. But he's wearing the priestly garments and he's doing the priestly work, whatever that would entail. But he's just quietly being faithful to do what he's been called by God and given by his mother to do. And so there's this picture of just being going, going through the work, doing what it is that God has called him to do. And there's a picture there of growth, multiple kinds of growth, okay? So Elkanah and Hannah, their family is growing. And it says that Eli is growing. Excuse me, Samuel's growing. He's growing physically. And so you see this picture here? He's ministering before the Lord, clothed in a linen ephod. And his mother would make him a little robe and take it to him each year. So you see that? This, I, wonder if, I wonder if they did what we used to do with the boys. We would mark on the wall where they were this year. And then, believe me, like in two weeks, we would mark on the wall where they were then. And then in a month, we would mark and, and wonder, why does Brad wake up in the morning hurting? Well, it's because his bones are growing every night. So I wonder if they were thinking, you know, Elkanah and Hannah there at the house, she's sewing, getting Samuel's little robe ready for him. I wonder how much he's grown. I wonder if it'll fit this year. You know, do they walk in and his sleeves are, you know, up to here and it's up to here? And she goes, oh, I don't think I made this big enough. 
I don't know, just kind of conjecture. I like kind of going that direction sometimes. I know it's a rabbit hole, but he's growing. And as he's growing physically, he's also growing spiritually. So this young man is described as doing the ministering of the priest. He's doing the work of the priest. He's wearing the clothing of the priest. But he's growing in his faith because it says there he continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. Notice something. The first reference to Samuel has him working under the tutelage of Eli. Eli has lost his credibility as a priest. He's lost God's blessing as a priest. His family will be removed as priest in just a minute. And Eli is not going to be in the picture any longer. And Samuel is growing. And people are beginning to see it. And God is at work, continuing and doing what he needs to do, even in the face of rampant corruption. Don't lose picture of that. God's being faithful. This strange person shows up. Start there in verse 27. So we have Eli and his family, Samuel and his family, and then God's prophetic promise. So God has spoken. I mean, Eli has has confronted his sons. Samuel's just faithfully serving there in the background, quietly doing what he's doing. And this strange encounter happens, starting in verse 27. There came a man of God... To Eli, he's unnamed, but clearly he's a prophet of some type. So this man came, this man of God came to Eli and he said to him, thus says the Lord. Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? These are rhetorical questions, by the way. Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? To go up to my altar to burn incense and to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares a promise that I promised that your house and the house of your father would go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will... Look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. This shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. Verse 35, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. 
And everyone who is left in your house shall come and implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Here is God's promise, his prophetic promise. First off, it is personal. And by that, I mean it is personal from God. Thus says the Lord. That's the formula that you will see throughout the Old Testament for a sure word personally from God to his people. Thus says the Lord. So this stranger comes on the scene. We don't know his name. We don't know anything about him. He just comes to bring this word from God to Eli. So it's personal from God and it's personal to Eli and to his sons. It is also convicting. By that I mean, it's almost like there's this court of law. I mean in light of God's evidence and His gracious provision and how they have simply taken that grace and kicked it down the road. They've just completely dismissed it. And so here it says in verse 27, Did I not reveal? God revealed Himself to to, the, to their ancestors, God revealed himself through Moses and how he was going to call out the tribe to be his priest. God revealed himself, and it implies that they knew this. They knew God had called out their predecessors and their family before them. God had revealed himself. Secondly, God chose, in verse 28 there, God chose your people. He chose your family. He chose to bring them out and give them this place of honor. And in verse 28, God gave. So God gave them sufficient food. He gave them all that they needed. Literally, he gave them everything they needed, and they just kicked it down the road. They just disregarded it completely. So I think it's a picture of God's convicting word, because the evidence is weighed, and there's no way they can argue around it. These rhetorical questions are clearly to be answered by God's grace. They did not listen to the voice of their father, and their father just disregarded God's grace in the past, or he would have taken it more seriously than he did. It's convicting, and it is absolutely certain. God says to them through this prophet, this is how you're going to know that what I'm saying will come to pass. Your two sons will die on the same day, and they will. We'll see that in a couple of chapters. And one of your descendants will end up begging for food. Wait. Isn't that what Hannah prayed? Isn't isn't that what Hannah said earlier in her song? When she was talking about, don't be so arrogant, the Lord's going to judge. And those who were full, it says there in verse 5, have hired themselves out for bread, and those who were hungry have ceased to be hungry. Yeah, God is a God of reversals. The Lord kills And the Lord brings to life. And his judgment is going to be sure. It's going to be certain. And this word of judgment is also Christ-centered. Because in verse 35, there is a, there is a, there is a, there's a fulfillment of this promise that's going to come short-term, but clearly there's more in mind here as we look long-term here. I'm going to raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house. And this is looking forward in the short-term to what he's going to do through David and how David himself as the king is going to also take that role of a priest. But it looks beyond that, right? There's no coincidence that little Samuel was growing in stature, and in the knowledge of God. Because there's to be another little boy come along. Right? 
the son of Mary, who's going to grow the same way in physical stature and in spiritual maturity. And then look over in the book of Hebrews. We could go to a lot of different places in the book of Hebrews. But God is going to raise up a faithful priest. He's going to raise up that faithful priest that the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4. This great high priest who has passed through the heavens. I'm in chapter 4, 14. Jesus, the Son of God. We don't have a high priest, he says, who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. I just see the callousness and the harshness and the abusive character of Hophni and Phinehas. And then I see this amazing, holy opposite in Jesus, who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And that gives us confidence, church. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. It says later on in chapter 7, that in the light of this faithful priest that we have, that he holds this priesthood permanently, and we're able to draw near to him because he is constantly there interceding for us. He's able to save to the uttermost. Able to save to the uttermost. Let me give you some points of application. I'm just going to kind of go through these pretty quickly. I actually posted these earlier. You can go back and look at them. The first one's pretty straightforward and pretty simple. You can discuss it with me if you want to in whatever perspective you want to take on it. But when it comes to leadership, character counts, period. It counts. All right? Enough said. It counts. In every realm of leadership, character counts. Secondly, it's easy to dismiss discipline in our family and in our church because, honestly, it's hard sometimes. It can be seen as unloving sometimes. It can seem antiquated sometimes. But permissiveness numbs us to the seriousness of sin. That's what was going on there in Shiloh. The fact that Hophni and Phinehas were being allowed to continue in this sin numbed them to the seriousness of it. And then in relationship to that numbed the people because they saw these clowns getting away with it. Permissiveness numbs us to the seriousness of sin and it removes God's gracious boundary of protection that comes in discipline. So in our homes and in our church, faithfulness to God, listen parents, faithfulness to God matters more than being your kid's friend. They need you to be a mom and a dad, not their friend. That will come later. Trust me, it will come later. And even in the life of the church, it's not always easy to hold forth God's word and standard. And we are trying as, our, as best as all of us could be to be very gracious when that happens. But when that does happen, then we have to step out in faith and do what the Lord tells us to do. And God blesses those who honor him in this way. He says so. Number three, never assume God is asleep at the wheel and unaware of what's going on. We could look at this and say, well, God just notices what's going on and he reacts to it. No, God is not reacting to anything. Paul tells us in the book of Romans that his wrath is being stored up. God, with his holy eyes, sees it all. And part of his immediate retribution, part of his immediate judgment on us, is giving us what we want in our sin and in our rebellion. Paul talks about that in the book of Romans. 
He just hands us over to our bad choices. And that's what we see happening with Hophni and Phineas. God had determined that they would pay that ultimate price in their, with their lives for what they did. But they made that choice continually. And so never assume that God is asleep at the wheel. He is administering His justice and He is storing up His wrath. And by giving into giving us the way we want to go with our sinful desires, I mean, all we've got to do is look at our culture and see that. That in itself is judgment. And one day there will be a full outpouring. Number four, never underestimate the influence, the God-sized influence of just being quiet, faithful, an obedient family. You won't be heard above the roar of the culture, but you will be noticed. You will be noticed. Some will say it's weird, but you will be noticed. Never underestimate how God is using one little quiet, faithful family, quiet, faithful servants, quiet, faithful moms and dads like Elkanah and Hannah, God has his remnant. He has his remnant, church. He has his little outpost of families who are being faithful, little outpost of salt and light and yeast, and he's going to use those to build his kingdom. Number five, contempt for the things of God are not always as extreme and overt as what we see in Hophni and Phinehas. Their contempt was blatant. Ours can be more covert, less intentional, but no less serious. Jonathan talked about this at the beginning of the service. I think it's especially relevant as we come to this table. We come in and out and in and out and in and out and in and out every week, and pretty soon we kind of lose sight of what it is that's happening as God's people gather for worship in His presence. And it's easy for us to just kind of kick that down the road. If not in some clearly seen, at least in our hearts. At least in our hearts. So we're about to come to this communion table and doing so carelessly and casually without a spirit-led examination of our hearts, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, can be very dangerous. No, no, we don't usually see God strike someone down in the middle of the sanctuary when it comes to the communion table. He could, but we don't usually see that. Don't take it lightly. And then finally, as I mentioned at the beginning, head knowledge of God is never enough. It is very temporal and it is eternally dangerous. Eternally. I'll never forget Jack McGorman. He was one of my professors at Southwestern. He was a Scottish gentleman, taught with a beautiful Scottish brogue. And we were studying the book of Romans. And he was talking about God giving us over to our sinful desires. And with tears in his eyes, Dr. Jack cried about sitting at the bedside of his son who grew up in Sunday school. Grew up in church, grew up with a dad who was a pastor and seminary professor. And in the end, the hardness of his calloused heart rejected Jesus completely. And Dr. McGorman just sat there and wept. Knowing that his son grew up in the proximity of the holy. And his heart got harder and harder and harder. 
So parent, take seriously the spiritual health of your son or your daughter. Don't freak out. Don't, don't just assume it's a lost cause. It is never that. But take that seriously. And young people, it's a big deal what we do here. It's a big deal what Jason teaches and what you hear on Sunday nights. This Jesus thing is not just a Jesus thing. Your eternal soul is at stake and your life will not be what God intends for it to be apart from a personal relationship with the God who created you through Christ. So being real close to all this religious stuff and never knowing personally the reason for it is not a good place to be. I can tell you that from personal testimony. So head knowledge is never enough. In fact, head knowledge is dangerous. And so we come to this table right now not confident in what we do or what we believe or what we have said, but we come confident in who Jesus is, what he's done for us. And that's who this table is for. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you and thank you today for this word. Thank you for the example that we have in worthless men. But God, help us, I pray, not just to look at this as a picture on a wall, but to look at it as a mirror. And help us, Lord, through the work of your Holy Spirit, by your word, to see our own hearts. Help us, God, through the light of your word, by the work of your Holy Spirit, to see, Lord, just how seriously, how, how we esteem you and love you. Lord, thank you for your word that tells us that you have written these things so that we may know that we are in Christ. You've not called us to a faith that is doubting and fearful. You've called us to a faith that is certain and sure. Because your Holy Spirit lives in those who are yours. Those who are yours, Lord, love to obey you and want to do what you call us to do. Those who love you, Lord, love your people. Lord, you just give us all of these pictures of what it means to be in a saving relationship with you. And I thank you for those truths, God, from your word. But, Lord, we do pray today for Those who may recognize now through this word that it's all been up in my head now. It's not in my heart. And God, that you do that holy work of moving it from up there to down here. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for your steadfast love. And Lord, as we come to this table, we thank you that this is love. Not that we first loved you, but that you loved us and gave your son as the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And we thank you for that in his name. Amen.